You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with the sermon this afternoon, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. This afternoon we'll be considering the second petition in the Lord's Prayer, where we ask for the kingdom of God to come. And it's in that connection that we will be reading from 1 John chapter 3. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. That is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen Him or known Him. Dear children, Do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning, because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. We'll turn our attention now to our text in the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 48 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is the second petition? Your kingdom come. That is... So rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil. Every power that raises itself against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until the fullness of your kingdom comes, wherein you shall be all in all. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I don't know if you've noticed this in the last little while, but it seems to me like kingdoms are on the rise. A short while ago, I can't remember if it was last year or the year before, one of the most acclaimed movies to come out was The King's Speech about King George VI and his battle to overcome his speech impediment. It was about the kingdom, the United Kingdom. Of England. We have these days more attention given to the English monarchy, more attention than I can remember ever being given to them with William and Kate and all the hoopla that's been surrounding them. There too, kingdom on the rise. We have these ever popular fantasy books that all the kids are reading these days and And these books are about these great kingdoms in faraway lands or imaginary lands. 
they seem always to, to be about a king of, of some sort and, and his great and powerful kingdom. You can think of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, famous several years ago. People are continuing to read those books about the great and powerful kingdoms that are at war there. And of course, every day we have little girls dressing up and playing princess in their little kingdoms that they concoct in their basement or playroom or bedroom or wherever they are. Kingdoms are on the rise. There's another kingdom that's on the rise. It has always been on the rise, and it will always continue to be on the rise until it's complete, until it fully comes. And that's God's kingdom. And that's the kingdom that has our attention this afternoon. And since it is God's kingdom, when our Lord Jesus teaches us to pray with respect to this kingdom, that it would come more and more, he urges us to pray to God. We always need to remember with God's kingdom that it is, in fact, God's kingdom. And so the first thing that we ought to do within his kingdom is to pray. Since it's God's kingdom, we pray to him for its coming. We pray that he would rule, that he would protect, that he would destroy, and that he would accomplish and bring to its fulfillment, to its end, its completion, his kingdom. So in the first place, we pray for him to rule. Have you ever played princess? I haven't. But in a certain way, I can imagine that it would be really great to be a princess in a certain way. To have giant tea parties with all sorts of wonderfully dressed up people. To have fancy balls, throw these great parties with great food and entertainment and all the things that come along with a, a great ball that a princess throws and that I'm sure all the young ladies in this congregation know about much better than I do. You see, when you're a princess, or at least when you pretend to that, when you pretend that you're a princess, you imagine that you live in a glorious, safe, secure, and rich kingdom. That's a prerequisite for being a princess. It has to be a glorious, safe, secure, and rich kingdom. Now, you know what's even better than playing princess in some imaginary kingdom? It's being a princess in a real kingdom. It's being a princess or a prince, if that suits you better, in God's kingdom. It's a wonderful thing to be a child of God, a child of the king, in his own kingdom. Do you know what that would look like? Let's consider that, first of all, this afternoon. To consider what it would look like to be a princess or a prince in God's kingdom, we need to go back, but not just to the Second World War, to King George's kingdom, not to King Arthur's court, not to some imaginary land, certainly. We need to go back to the historic place of the Garden of Eden to understand what it would be like 
to be a prince or a princess in God's kingdom. When we're talking about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the place where God rules. That defines the kingdom of God. It's where God is king, where he rules. And we see God ruling in the Garden of Eden. We see God ruling there in a way that we don't experience today. Because in the Garden of Eden, God ruled over his kingdom, and his kingdom responded to him in complete harmony and unity and obedience. God continues to rule there, uh, to rule now, but there God's rule was met with perfect obedience. The garden wasn't affected by sin. And so Adam and Eve enjoyed this perfectly harmonious relationship with God's creation, with each other, with themselves, most of all, with their God. Why was that garden such a blissful place for Adam and Eve? Why did they have such perfect harmony there? It was because there God ruled perfectly and everyone and everything submitted to Him. It was perfect harmony. God, it wasn't as though God didn't rule there. He did. He certainly did. He gave commands. He gave obligations. He gave promises. Just like any king would do. He demanded obedience from his subjects, Adam and Eve, from his angels. And they all loved to obey him. Of course they did. He was a good king. He is a good king. But then, they grew discontent. They tried to cast off God's rule. At a certain point, they didn't want God to be king anymore. They thought that this would be so much better if they were kings. They listened to the devil as he told them that they could become kings. And they executed a failed attempt at becoming kings themselves. But it's God's kingdom. There's only room for one king in God's kingdom. And that's God. There's no room for any other king. And so God banished Adam and Eve from his garden and away from the blessings of his perfect rule and reign. God banished them because they didn't want him to be king anymore. And God banished them because they could not live there any longer. Because they could not submit perfectly to his rule as they ought. Adam and Eve didn't want to be ruled by God. They wanted to rule themselves. And so God let them. He let them rule themselves. He allowed them to establish their own kingdom. Their own puny, miserable little kingdom where they could rule. The problem was that they weren't meant to be kings. They were powerless without God. They were protectionless without God. They were corrupt. Their own hearts were corrupt. They became slaves to themselves. They established themselves as their own kings, but as a result, they became slaves to themselves, to their own desires and to their own wickedness. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in that well-known passage in Romans 1. He speaks about sinful man, and he says that furthermore, 
Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, then God gave them over to a depraved mind. He let them have it to do what not ought to be done. And so they become with every, filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And so this is the result of fallen man. Fallen man is rebels of God's kingdom. This is the reality of all who have cast off the rulership of God. And this is the reality that we continue to see today. It was not only Adam and Eve who experienced this banishment from God's kingdom and this handing over to their desires and into every, all sorts of wickedness and sin and misery as a result, but this is what we continue to see today. As the human heart has this ingrained desire to be king and to set up a kingdom for itself. So we see people living in rebellion to God, but in slavery to their desires and thoughts. They're ruled by their own hearts. And so they go out reaping the miserable rewards of this. If you're the king of a puny little kingdom, then you don't feel very safe. And so you're afraid of all your enemies. If you're the king of a puny little kingdom, and there's all sorts of other puny little kingdoms all around you, then you need to compete. You're constantly at war with those around you. That's the reality that we see today. If you're the king of your puny little kingdom and you don't even know how to rule properly yourself, then you're going to be affected by that with all sorts of broken relationships and lawlessness, sinfulness, and misery. And so, though we once lived in perfect harmony under God's perfect rule, now the world lives in perfect misery under their own rule. So what's the solution? Well, what can a rebel warlord do when he realizes that really he's just the rebel warlord over some miserable pauper kingdom that's never going to come to anything? What can a traitor do when she comes to understand the folly of her deceit? What can a criminal do when he comes to understand that the sentence for his crime is death? If you're living in rebellion against God, the only king, what can you do about that? The only thing that a treasonous subject can do, that the criminal, that the rebel warlord can do, is repent. Recognize the misery that you've brought on yourself and return in complete humility before the one who truly is king. Repent and humble yourself before God, the only king, and ask that he would be gracious enough to accept you into his kingdom. This is what we all must do. Submit our hearts to God because we realize we can no longer rule over them ourselves to any profit or any gain. We must ask that God would rule over our hearts. 
then things will be good for us. And you can do that. In many kingdoms, if you're a traitor, if you're a rebel warlord and you come to the king, you will be killed. That's the price of your treason. But the king to whom we go is a forgiving king. He forgives wickedness and rebellion. He forgives those who have lived their lives in opposition to him. He's merciful and compassionate and gracious. He accepts the person who comes to him with a broken and contrite spirit. He doesn't demand your death sentence, though he would be just in doing so, because he has already accepted the death sentence of his son Jesus Christ, who has given his life on your behalf, so that you can come to him. God accepts you through Jesus Christ, allows you back into his kingdom, and once again establishes his rule in your heart. You don't go right back to the Garden of Eden, however, when that happens. God doesn't transplant us from this world straight into the Garden of Eden, or straight into heaven, or straight into the fulfillment or completion of his kingdom. God doesn't transplant us out of anywhere. What he does is he implants himself into our hearts. So that we are still in this broken world. We even still have sinful desires within our hearts. But God grabs hold of our hearts, dwells in them, and begins to rule over them more and more and more. And he doesn't speak to us with an audible voice like he once did in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. But he does continue to speak to us, speak straight to our hearts where he dwells. And he does that through his word. So God establishes his rule over us by his spirit in our hearts and by his word. And so you understand then, why we need to pray about this. We need to pray that God would rule more and more over our hearts. Because if we rely on ourselves, even to be obedient children in God's kingdom, we will fail. Our hearts are those those miserable, corrupt, rebellious hearts. We cannot rule ourselves. Remember the misery that we brought on ourselves when we tried that. No, we must submit ourselves to God, humble ourselves before God, and pray that He, more and more, would rule over us. And so we ask God to rule. We also ask God to protect us. Now in my household, we don't play princess. We play knights. Princesses enjoy all the frills and benefits of the kingdom as they sit back in their palace and have these great balls, but knights are way more fun. Knights ensure that princesses and everybody else in the kingdom is safe and protected. The knights are out there on the front lines doing the work of the kingdom. Every kingdom needs protection, and God's kingdom is no different. 
It needs protection. God enlists knights for the protection of his kingdom. But actually what we're going to consider in this is that as the knights go out for God's kingdom serving in his army, those knights themselves need God's protection. Explain what we're speaking about there. Now, where is God's kingdom? It's hard to say. God's kingdom is throughout this whole world. We said already that God's kingdom is where God rules. Well, doesn't God rule over this entire universe? Yes, he does. Does God not rule over this whole world? Yes, he does. God's rule is everywhere. God's kingdom is everywhere. You don't find borders of God's kingdom anywhere. God's kingdom is the place where God rules, and God rules over all. His kingdom has no end. And yet, our Lord Jesus teaches, the kingdom of God is is an almost invisible kingdom. It's fitting, since God is the invisible and only ruler, as we learn from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Jesus compares God's kingdom to leaven in a bread. It has a great effect. It makes the bread rise, but you can't actually see it. So it's affecting all sorts of things, but you can't see the leaven itself. Or it's like the pearl of great price, Jesus says. It's very valuable, but if you slip it into your pocket, no one can see it. It's like a mustard seed. It may be great in the future, it has a lot of potential, but it's barely visible as a seed. You can only barely see it. And so God's kingdom is an almost invisible kingdom. But there is a visible part of it. And that's the church. The church is the visible part of God's kingdom. And the church is the front lines of God's kingdom. The church is like the knights in God's kingdom, waging war, waging battle on the front, front lines, on the frontier. If you think of, of a great kingdom, then you realize that if you're a subject of a great kingdom, you don't necessarily see the king or his palace or the great city of the king at any time. What you do see are the knights and soldiers, those who do the commands of the king all around you. So it is in the world. What the world sees of God's kingdom is us, the church. The church is the front lines of God's kingdom, where our great commander, Jesus Christ, pours his eternal spiritual resources to keep us going in the great battle, the great cause of his kingdom. And so as church, we fight the good fight of the faith. We are the front lines of God's kingdom. But in this, we ourselves need God's protection. God's given us a task, but we need protection from God or else we would certainly be lost. And this is at all levels. We're knights, we're foot soldiers, we're infantry, we're in the battle. And so we need to be outfitted with the right equipment. We need to to have to wear the right protection. Otherwise, we will not be effective. We also need support from behind, artillery support as we go to battle. Otherwise, we won't be able to accomplish any victory. We need our supply lines, our resource lines maintained. If we were to be cut off from our supply, we would be stranded, isolated, 
and we would be lost. And we, within ourselves as church, we need our spirits encouraged and our focus maintained. As church, God has given us a special offensive task in His kingdom, but we would be fools to imagine that we would accomplish anything in this task without God's constant protection over us. So I want to show you a few ways that God does protect us in this battle. In the first place, God outfits us. God supplies us with the equipment that we need in our task. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in Ephesians chapter 6. The armor of God. It's armor that we wear, but it's it's divinely sourced. God is the great military outfitter of his army. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the belt of truth that holds everything together. That's necessary. And the breastplate of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to protect our hearts. Jesus Christ, His righteousness protects our life, so we do not need to fear anything. The Apostle Paul speaks about the sandals of the gospel that motivate our feet to moving, and the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, so that we can both defend against and strike out against the attacks of the devil in this battle. All of these, as we said, are divinely sourced Equipment, protection. God is our military outfitter. God protects us in this way. As well, God provides the artillery support that the church needs. Artillery support is the help that comes from unexpected places. You're there in the front lines, you're doing your battle, and all of a sudden a big bomb blows up in front of you and and erases the enemy for you. God provides the artillery support when his church needs it. When Joshua was fighting the Amorites, creation joined in the battle and the normal operation of the universe halted so that they could win. When Elisha was being threatened by the Arameans, they were struck by blindness. When God's people were being worn down and persecuted by the Roman Empire, certain periods of their, of, of their history, the history of the early church and the Roman Empire were very difficult. Yes, the blood of the martyrs was the the seed of the church, but if that persecution would have continued indefinitely, the church would have had a hard time surviving. But yet God intervened, and he took the heart of the emperor Constantine, and almost overnight dramatically changed the fortunes of Christians in that time. To ensure that the recovery of the gospel by Martin Luther and the other reformers would not go unnoticed, would not remain in some little city in Germany. God provided the printing press and universities and even the state government to further the cause of the church. Today, God has given us the internet. God has given us cheap air travel, access to the world, scientific advances, abundant wealth to support the ministry of the church. God provides us artillery support in our mission from sometimes the most unexpected places. In our battle as well, we would be lost if we were ever cut off from our supply line. 
This is one of the most crucial aspects in any military strategy. You always have to protect your supply line. If your supply line is cut off, then the battle is over and the war is probably won. But we know that we will never be cut off from our supply lines because nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Because God pours out His love for us into our hearts by His Holy Spirit. God implants His Spirit into our hearts so that we will never be lacking the spiritual resources that we need in this battle. The Holy Spirit keeps us constantly connected to our Lord and to all the spiritual resources that we have in Him. And finally, the Lord Jesus Christ encourages our hearts and lifts our spirits through His Gospel. Through the ministry of the church, the preaching of the good news, we're never far from those refreshing times that follow repentance or from the joy of our salvation, or from the unity and the fellowship that we gain by the Holy Spirit. God, through His Word and through the ministry of the Gospel, is constantly encouraging our hearts, lifting our spirits, uniting us together to make us effective in this battle. God, through His Word and Spirit, is constantly refreshing us. Yes, God rules us by these means, as we saw in the first point, but He also preserves and protects us by these. So when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we're asking that His church would be powerfully protected and forcefully advanced against the enemy, against all the evil and darkness in this world. We have a God-given task. We are fighting the good fight of the faith as church, but we need God's protection. We would be lost without it. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us to pray. To pray for God's kingdom to come. To pray for that protection of God's kingdom to come over us and be with us as we fight. And so God rules over His kingdom. God also protects His kingdom. But God also destroys as king of His kingdom. Now you know that every kingdom, if you read books about kingdoms or history about kingdoms, you know that every kingdom has an enemy. But if you've been listening as we talk about princes and princesses and knights and imaginary kingdoms, you may start to think, oh, maybe this enemy of God's kingdom is also an imaginary one. We can't see him. Maybe he's imaginary. Maybe he's not real. Many have concluded that. Uh, The enemy of God's kingdom that the Bible speaks about, Satan, the accuser, the devil, he's not real. No one's ever seen him. It's imaginary stuff, just like princes, princes and princesses and knights. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because there is an enemy of God's kingdom, and he is the devil, he is Satan, and he is most certainly real. Satan's work is ongoing, and the battle is not over. The Bible itself is very clear 
about the reality of Satan. Right from the very beginning, the Garden of Eden, Satan shows up and helps in the rebellion that Adam and Eve perpetrate against God their king. And Satan continues to show up throughout Scripture. He shows up in the time of Job. He's very present in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's always present in the life of the church as the book of Revelation teaches us. The Bible is very clear about the reality, the pernicious, evil reality of Satan. But doesn't experience also teach us about the reality of Satan? Now, I'm not saying that we see him, that we hear him. Satan's a spiritual being. He, too, is invisible. But just like you can see the the life-renewing work of the Holy Spirit by the effect that the, the work of the Holy Spirit has on the lives of his people, so you can see that the life-sucking reality of Satan's work and the carnage in this world that he wreaks on this world, in all things evil and destructive and wrong. Don't you see Satan at work in this world? I see Satan operating a multi-billion dollar pornography industry, which is capturing men, many men, and many from the church as well. I see that same machine being run by Satan as it destroys the lives of women around the world and promotes the global sex trade. I read about the work of Satan every day in the news as he exerts his power over secular governments that oppress the poor, that take advantage of the weak, that overturn justice as the way that they do business. Satan is certainly at work there. Satan works his carnage increasingly in a whole culture that finds Christianity intolerant and therefore unacceptable in the name of what they ironically call tolerance. I see Satan behind religious systems that use threats and force and violence to maintain power. I see Satan at work where religious leaders incite hatred ignore abuse, allow perpetrators of crime to continue in their crimes. I see Satan feeding an entertainment industry that's becoming more and more effective at seducing the hearts of Christians and even at rewiring our brains so that more and more we find simple things like reading the Bible and taking time to pray and meditating on God and on His Word, difficult to do. Because that entertainment culture, that entertainment industry is is so pervasive and so focused on changing the way that we think and the way that we feel. Don't you hear Satan laughing? As death and disease and disaster wreak havoc across the world? Don't you see Satan undermining confidence in the Bible? Slowly eroding confidence in God's Word. So that when we talk about things like the Garden of Eden, 
we actually think we're talking about fairy tales. We could go on for a while. Satan is at work. He's continuing to fight against the kingdom of God, and he's working powerfully. But he's not well. His days are, in fact, numbered. Yes, Satan incites rebellion and he works against the church with every ounce of strength that he has, but his are the last desperate attempts, last gasps at life of a trapped animal who knows that it's doomed. Satan is doomed. His days are numbered. They were numbered ever since the Garden of Eden, when immediately after that rebellion, God came to Adam and Eve, searched them out and found them, and promised them that he would bring a savior, and that he would destroy the devil, and all evil along with him. His days were numbered when God's word was fulfilled, and Jesus Christ came into this world, as we read in 1 John 3, to destroy the devil's work. Satan's most powerful weapons are sin and death. That's what he uses to fight his battle all around the world. That's what's causing all the carnage in this world. But Jesus Christ has paid the price for sin. He's defeated sin. He has dealt with sin. And he's defeated death in his resurrection. He paid the price of sin on the cross and he defeated the power of death in his resurrection. Already now, yes, Satan is fiddling while the world burns, but the church can find safety and protection and shelter within the peace and righteousness and joy of Jesus Christ, of being united with Him. You see, if Satan's greatest weapons are sin and death, and the victory over sin and death is made real in Jesus Christ, then those who are united to Jesus Christ are protected from Satan. And we know that Satan's days are numbered. Yes, he's powerfully at work, and it's terrible, and we ought to fight against his work at every turn. But all the while we know his days are numbered. There will come a day when he too is destroyed. God is destroying His works even now as the ministry of the gospel goes out into this world, but He will be completely destroyed Himself in the future. Matthew chapter 25, Revelation 20, one day God will throw Satan Himself into a lake of fire. The popular conception is that Satan rules over hell. No, Satan, hell is the place where Satan Himself will experience eternal punishment and condemnation suffer eternal torment along with all of the enemies of God who do not repent and humble themselves before Him. And so the kingdom of God is steadily marching forward, destroying the work of the devil until on that last day Jesus Christ comes with His powerful angels and Satan himself will be destroyed and sin and death and all evil along with Him will be cast into a great sea of fire. And then the end will come. And then will come the perfection of God's reign. A time even better than the Garden of Eden. When God will rule over heaven and earth and all people. And we will joyfully, willingly, 
submit to Him. We will praise Him for what He has accomplished against sin and what He has accomplished in our salvation. Yes, one day the march of God's kingdom will stop because His kingdom will ultimately arrive. This has been determined according to God's plan from the very beginning. And the day is known only to Him. And it will come only by His almighty power. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we ought never to stop praying for God's kingdom to come. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.